0: Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlocks big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features. Get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock for you the book The Big Short. Speaking of the US subprime crisis, we believe you're already familiar with it. The crisis began in the spring of 2006. At the time, Many Americans that borrowed money to buy homes couldn't afford their bank loans. They sold their homes and housing prices plunged which triggered an economic crisis that engulfed the housing and financial markets. By August 2007, the crisis had influenced the financial markets of the U.S., the European Union, and Japan. It also brought unimaginable damage to the famed Wall Street. However, some saw the crisis well before the bubble burst. While everyone else was dreaming of making money, they shorted the market and made handsome profits and became one of the few people to make a fortune during a financial disaster. They performed what the book calls the Big Short. So, who are they? How did they manage to see the situation clearly? That is the story of the Big Short. The book was written by American best-selling author Michael Lewis. His best-selling books include Liar's Poker, The New New Thing, and The Big Short. Forbes chose both Liars Poker and The New New Thing as the 20 most influential business books of the 20th century. He is currently a contributing editor of Vanity Fair. In The Big Short, Michael Lewis' ability to capture the ins and outs of financial trading and the way people think and behave has a lot to do with his own experience. In his early years at Wall Street's top investment bank Salomon Brothers, he gained deep insight into the financial industry. As soon as it was published, The Big Short became the go-to book for people who wanted to study the financial crisis of 2008. In 2015, the book was adapted into a film that won the Oscars for Best Adapted Screenplay. While the film focuses more on Wall Street's greed, what we're going to unlock focuses more on what caused the financial crisis, and how people responded to it. Next We will explain the core content of the book from three aspects. Part 1, What Caused the U.S. Subprime Crisis? Part 2, The Truth Behind the Bubble and Why Were People Were So Optimistic? Part 3, Who Benefited from the Financial Disaster After the Bubble Burst? We mentioned earlier that the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis triggered the 2008 global financial crisis. So, what is subprime? This is a financial term. The full name is subprime mortgage which refers to loans made by lenders to people with poor credit and low incomes. It is different from a prime loan. The so-called prime loan refers to returning what has been borrowed on time. The case for subprime is not the same. For example, let's say a man named Tom just started working and has a very low income. If he wants to buy a house, he has to borrow money from a bank. If the bank lends to Tom, there is a risk that he may not pay back the loan. This kind of loan is called a subprime loan. The American subprime crisis began when banks lent money to many poor people to buy homes. At this point, you might want to ask, would a bank lend money to someone who can't pay it back? The answer is yes, and that was the intention of the US government. When it comes to buying a home, we have to go back even further. From the late 1980s to the early 1990s, the United States real estate market continued to boom for more than a decade. The number of home sales continued to hit record highs, and housing prices also increased at a rate higher than 10% a year. American housing prices doubled in the 11 years between 1995 and 2006. In addition to the housing market, let's look at the U.S. economy at that time. From 2000 to 2001, The U.S. economy began to decline, and the rate of decline accelerated after 9-11. The Federal Reserve Chairman at the time Alan Greenspan adopted a series of measures to stimulate consumption. One of these measures was to cut interest rates. At that time, deposit and loan interest rates in the United States were very low. It even got to the point that the interest rate reached 1%. If you put $100 in the bank and withdrew it at the end of the year, you would only get $101. In contrast, America's housing market was booming. If you borrowed money from a bank to buy a house, the housing prices could rise by more than 10% in a year. The interest you had to pay to the bank was negligible by comparison. The net profit was better than any investment. Therefore, the whole logic of the housing market was changed. In the past, people would consider whether they would be able to pay back the principal and interest when purchasing a property. However, during this period, as long as you could sell the house that you used the loan to purchase, you could make a lot of money from the spread. In the meantime, mortgage terms in the United States were incredibly loose. The loans had a zero down payment, zero interest for the first two years, or a very low interest rate. Such loan terms were not like lending money it was more like throwing money to the borrowers. The credit assessments for borrowers were also very loose. Had a low income? It didn't matter since the housing prices would rise anyway. Why not just sell the house if the borrowers can't pay it back? This is a one-way bet. The author uses a Mexican strawberry picker in California as an example. He earned $14,000 a year with no savings, and bought a $724,000 property with a loan from a financial institution. What does $724,000 mean? That means without even spending money on anything else, it would take him 50 years to pay back the principal. It was clear that the credit assessments for borrowers existed in name only due to the lure of profits. Under such loose policies, a large number of Americans took out loans to buy houses. According to the book, $500 billion in new loans were added to the American subprime mortgage market every year. At this point, you may wonder why the subprime crisis that originated in the housing boom affected the entire financial market and even the global economy. To answer this question, we first need to clarify the role of banks, investment banks, insurance companies, hedge funds, and individual investors throughout the subprime lending process. Americans who wanted to get a mortgage didn't go to banks directly. They went to mortgage agencies. The two largest mortgage companies in the United States were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They were also called Fannie and Freddie. Fannie and Freddie's money were borrowed directly from banks. At first, Fannie and Freddie were cautious about lending out money. They gradually experienced the sweet taste of subprime loans. With the government's endorsement, if the borrowers failed to repay the loans, the government would pay the banks back instead. Therefore, Fanny and Freddie began to borrow money frantically from banks to lend to people who were lining up to buy houses. Inevitably, the money lent to Fanny and Freddie was limited, but they only received payments from borrowers once a year. Such cash flows made it hard for them to expand their business. Therefore, Fanny and Freddie came up with an idea. How about putting these loans into bonds and releasing them into the capital markets? The money would get back to them very soon. Fannie and Freddie found third-party companies known as special-purpose vehicles or SPVs that helped them package the bonds into subprime mortgage securities. They sold them to investors, turning one person's liabilities into another person's assets. We can't help but ask again, since subprime became securities in the capital market, Why did those investment banks fall apart when the crisis hit? In fact, the capital game was far from over. Since subprime mortgages were so lucrative, more players wanted to get involved in one way or another. The big investment banks on Wall Street such as the well-known Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are quite wealthy. Their services include securities issue and underwriting, corporate restructuring, merger and acquisition, venture capital investment, and so on they are the main financial intermediaries in the capital market. With their entry, the subprime mortgage securities market inflated like never before. Clever bankers then discovered that the subprime mortgage securities in the market were not perfect enough to satisfy the investment needs of investors with different risk preferences. Therefore, they invented collateralized debt obligations. They packaged bad loans into bonds with AAA or triple-B ratings and sold them to investors with different risk preferences. Does no one want triple-B rated bonds? No worries. Go to the rating agencies like the world-famous Moody's, Standard & Poor's, or Fitch. Once you get a AAA rating, you will have excellent products that are ready for sale. In this way, $50 million worth of mortgages may have $2 billion worth of various derivatives behind it. To avoid risk, individual investors preferred to buy AAA bonds. Who were the buyers of these B bonds then? This was where hedge funds came in. The original purpose of hedge funds was to hedge risks and guarantee returns. Investors were less concerned with risks under the temptation of huge profits. With the hedge funds helping to avoid risks, buying up these low-rated bonds was the quickest way to get rich. Having enjoyed the high yields in the subprime market, hedge funds pledged these bonds to banks for loans to have more capital to expand. The investment banks saw that there was still untapped premium in the market, so they created another kind of insurance policy called credit default swaps. The policy would insure the bonds. And as you can see, insurance companies were pulled in. Well, as a result the main financial institutions including banks, investment banks, hedge funds and insurance companies were all involved. Also, the aforementioned series of financial products were sold worldwide, so almost all financial institutions in the world were associated with the U.S. subprime. As long as housing prices kept rising, these products tied to mortgages would keep making money. However, you might ask, would U.S. housing prices continue to rise? Just as Wall Street was ramping up its fortunes, the Federal Reserve sensed the risk of a bubble. It began raising interest rates to prevent bubbles. From June 2004 to June 2006, the Fed raised interest rates 17 times in a row. When the Fed raised interest rates, the banks raised interest rates as well. As a result, many buyers could not afford to pay their loans, and housing prices fell rapidly. Eventually, the real estate market crashed, leaving many civilians homeless. Due to the chain reaction, a large number of financial institutions got into trouble or went bankrupt. In 2008, the subprime crisis broke out, quickly spreading to the whole world and evolving into an international financial crisis. That's all for the first part. So how did the U.S. subprime crisis happen? After 9-11, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to stimulate consumption. This policy led Americans, many of them low-income, to borrow money to buy houses. Therefore, there was a large number of subprime mortgages. In order to make money, financial institutions packaged subprime into various financial products and released them into the capital market. As the Fed raised interest rates, the housing market collapsed, and financial institutions got into trouble or went bankrupt. The subprime crisis in the United States soon turned into a global financial crisis. Having said that, you might ask, didn't anyone notice that something was wrong while everyone else was so optimistic about the economy? This will be the content for part 2. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play.